Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with James Rebanks. James, how are you? I'm really good, thank you. Thank you for having me on. It's a, it's a pleasure and an honor. Thank you. I'm glad to have you here. And I spent a long time trying to figure out how to start this conversation because I want to give the listeners a sense of who you are and what you've written about. But what you've written about is so, it's difficult to summarize the scope and the feeling. So to say that it's about being a shepherd in England's Lake District, I think it doesn't do it justice. In some sense, what you've written is timeless. It's about family. It's about generations passing. It's about love and responsibility, particularly on the masculine side. And I'm very curious if your wife writes, because there's this, it seems like there's something missing there of, of the inside the house. It's about nature. It's about farming, land, human culture, and values. But in another sense, it's very personal to you. It's your struggles, your dogs, your land, your fence, your struggles and emotions with your father, your grandfather, your pride and support of your children. In another sense, it's about all of our times. It's our markets, our loss in values in the face of cheap prices, our globalization, our loss of community, culture, wildlife, our loss of flavor, our loss of character. And so I thought I would start by sharing. I know I'm sorry to keep you from getting to hear your voice, but I'll share with how I came to your work. Since I think that once anyone starts, they'll have my experience of wanting to read it all and watch some of the videos too. So your publisher's publicist contacted me. And I hadn't heard of you at that stage. That was the first I'd heard of you. But I'd read several farming books by this point and was on the fence about your fit with this podcast, not knowing much. But there's a New Yorker, New Yorker article, and I like that's usually pretty good. But that actually didn't draw me in. But combined with thousands of online reviews, it really got me curious. And still, I was like, so I really want to get into two books, maybe three. This was like a lot. And I asked my family, and my mom grew up on a farm and my sister does a lot of gardening, but they hadn't read your stuff. And I don't know, I just, at last I started reading your stuff. Yeah. So, so far, this is just a sad story about no one ever having heard of me, right? <laughs> well, that's because <laughs> like <it. laughs> it was the reading that was like, I just started reading the book and I found the language, the scope of what you wrote about, the focus, it was compelling. And I, say, I came to see your passion for your craft there was something timeless in the, in the fragile existence of what you'd mastered in the face of an onslaught of a market that valued efficiency, intensity, where nearly everyone chooses to help that market crush what we care about and what we've built up over millennia. And I think what you, you write about farming and shepherding rather, but I think even something very modern, a programmer, a computer programmer, or Everyone feel, I think we feel this happening to us, that something's taking away what we care about and we're actually complicit in it if we don't really dive in to face it. And then I just couldn't stop because there's a superficial difference. It's very different. But The Godfather is, all right, yes, it's about the mob, but it's about family and it's about, and it's about so, it's so, your books made me think of that, of, of the scope and the scale and the compassion. Okay. So let me, I've gone on too long. Did you know that you were going to write multiple books when you started? Did you know how much you were going to explore? Did you know the scope? No. So, so I'm, I was a farm kid that bummed out of skills. Uh-huh. So even when I fell in love with books and even when I fell in love with books and thought maybe I could do this or, or I kind of want to do it as well as my other life when I was maybe 17 or 20 years old, uh, I had enough imagination and ego to think I might someday write a book and that people might read it. Uh, I didn't have enough ego or imagination to think there's a second one. So yeah, there was a really interesting moment after the first book came out and I was incredibly lucky that that was a, like a success all around the world. There's a moment where you think, what do I, what do, I do now? Have, is, is there more story I want to tell? Is there more things I want to say? Because I'd kind of given everything I had at that time to the first book. And, and actually the answer was I wasn't ready yet. So I spent two or three years working on the next book before I really realized what it was and what I wanted to say. and. In a nutshell, I, I kind of earned a lot of, I was very lucky. I, I, I used the first book to be very sort of culturally proud. I defended my people, the people I grew up among. I told everyone who they were and why I cared about them. And that's good. That's, that's kind of what I wanted to do when I was a kid. But then I felt, I felt like that reflected the me that, was, me that grew up 20 years ago, the me, me of 10 years ago. I didn't feel like it really reflected me now when I'm super aware of climate change and biodiversity loss and all these huge global things swirling around. And I felt like 
I, I realized after two or three years of bumbling around on this book, I realized what I wanted to do really, which is to write through the eyes of a farm boy, write about what I saw happening in terms of those big changes, changes that other people like Rachel Carson or Wendell Berry and others have written about from other angles. But in, in a way, I wanted, to, I mean, crudely, I sort of wanted to write Silent Spring 2, but do like the farm boy version of it and say, look, I, I lived through this. I've got a pretty good idea what this looked like. I know why my dad did these things and my grandfather. So yeah, I wanted to make it very personal. And I'm delighted by, sorry, your, your comments about what I've done are very touching because actually all my writing heroes are quite epic. Like I, I love Tolstoy. He's, you know, Tolstoy's telling quite small stories about people, but he's, he's unashamedly trying to tell you everything, right? He's trying to, he's trying to give you these big, epic, almost biblical sort of narratives. And yeah, I wanted to do that really because it, in the years after my father died six years ago, it became really clear to me that local things, like what I do in my fields, what I eat, how we shop, that those little things that we all take for granted that are just part of day-to-day life, or certainly for me as a farmer and you as a consumer, they're actually shaping the world. And I wanted to I wanted to tell that story from within a farm, as honestly as I could, just say, look, okay, this is, my dad did some stuff that an ecologist wouldn't like. <laughs> my granddad did some stuff that moved us from A to B and B might not be better. And yeah, I just, just as time went on, I thought, hang on a minute, I've, I've never read anybody write this book. So it felt like I had something to say and yeah, I wanted to find a way to do it. And, and yes, I am very, very ambitious as a writer. I'm trying to write about big things through a small frame about my dad, my granddad, our little fields, our little farm. That's very much what I was trying to do. So I'm glad you felt that and related to it. Yeah, it does seem there's this challenge of, of talking about yourself. Is that going to be just about yourself? Or is that going to give the reader the connection that they need to see the greater picture? You, did you struggle with that or did, you, did it come out naturally? Uh, I, think, I think you work at those things. So actually writing is like my great love. I could write, I could just write little scenes about things that happened in my life. I'd be very happy if anybody ever read those. I think, I think the way as a writer that I know how to connect with people best is to make it very personal and to just absolutely tell the absolute truth as I, I see it or feel it. And I was watching a really good BBC documentary about Ernest Hemingway the other day. And okay, he's got lots of faults, but he, he knew a thing or two about writing. And there's a lovely quote in there where he says, you have to, you have to put it all down because readers know. Readers know, has this person laid themselves bare? Have they told you the bad stuff and the good stuff? And I think if you, if you have enough courage to do that, and that doesn't always come easy, if you have enough courage to do that, that then I think people relate to it. They relate to the fact that, okay, my dad's not perfect, but there's a good man in there and there's a lot of good stuff about him. Or they relate to families being, like mine, being swept along. As you say, I think everybody has this dull, nagging sense that have we been swept along into something that's wrong or doesn't work properly or might be deeply flawed? And yeah, and, and my, my lived experience over the last 20, 30 years, I mean, I'm 47 years old now, my lived experience ever since I began to think about these things in my teens is a growing realization that we've been swept along by all these technologies, by all these ideas, by these ways of thinking about economics. And it took me a long time, a long, long time. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm no Einstein. It took me a long time to to realize what we'd been part of. And I think it was almost the writing of the first book that made me grow up, really. I'd reckoned with who we were in that first book, but then there was a sort of moment for me where you have to grow up and you say, okay, what do I, what do, I do now? What do I think about this whole thing? How do I capture that? How do I tell the story of, of people being swept along into this future that's broken? And yeah, I, I think in a way, writing these books is me on the page growing up, really, sort of growing up and reckoning with these difficult things that I've lived through. and. It's quite good. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's nice. So when, when my, I mean, my first book was, a lot of it was about my dad and um, he died six years ago. And when he died, like one of the last things I said to him, I said, are you and me okay? Because we had a quite tense relationship 20 years earlier. And he just looked at me and said, yeah, we're good. And I know exactly what that means in Cumbrian farmer speak. It means, yeah, there was bumps along the way, but we're fine. And you know that I love you. You know that I respect you and, and vice versa. And there's nothing else to say. And I think for, for me, that's why I, I love writing. That's why I try to be truthful. I think you have to. I think it's a writer's job. Did Hemingway, it was Hemingway the one who said, writing is easy. I just sit at my typewriter and bleed, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure if it was Hemingway, but I know the quote and um, whoever it was. Yeah, I think so. I think, I think writing stuff that you don't give yourself to fully is really, really easy. Anyone can sit down, write sort of bog standard prose about a thing or telling people what to feel. 
I think telling a more truthful story that makes clear your own flaws, like your, your, your ego and your mistakes and your things you believe that now you no longer believe. But I think to write about that stuff is sort of bleeding, <laughs> bleeding at the, uh, bleeding at the, at the typewriter computer. Yeah. Your photographs are pretty big too. I mean, are pretty, uh, pretty expressive. And I think a way that a lot of people engage with you and they seem, they're not as personal, but they're, they're beautiful and timeless. Does your approach to photography? So I, I, I've no training in photography and I, I, on one level, don't really care about photography, really. I care greatly about writing. Photography is just a thing I, I sort of picked up. But if I'm any good at that, um, I think it's because I love landscape paintings. I'm really, without, without even knowing the language about fine art, my wife, um, who is a writer, answering the question from earlier, uh-huh. uh, but she was also an artist. And when I was young, uh, she, uh, trying to impress her, I would go with her to art galleries. And as a farm boy, I thought, I'm going to hate this. But actually, I would always go to the room where all the landscape, sort of 19th century landscape paintings are, or earlier. Mm-hmm. And I, um, yeah, I'm obsessed by composition. I find composition really easy. And I find paintings and movies and music to an extent actually help me a lot as a writer. Just even things that people would, no one would imagine, like, like listening to really sort of contemporary urban music or rap or things like that. There's, there's rhythms in there and stuff, which I think, oh, wow, that's, that's good. I think I could do something with that. So I, I love paintings. I love movies. I try, I try to write like a movie of anything. I'm trying to, I want you to see what I saw, feel what I felt. Yeah. Yeah. I probably want to, I want to explore one thing. That is, I'm going to indulge myself here that there's something that I, I love about the different arts that the same words have different meanings, but mean the same thing. And when you say composition for writing, you write in a composition book, but usually I think of the first place I think of composing would be music. But rhythm, I tend to think of music, but a painting has rhythm and poetry has rhythm and line and shape and color and form. They all make sense in everything. I think so. And I think there's another thing happening. There's a sort of Marshall, what's he called? Marshall McLuhan, the medium is the message. Was that how you say his name? But he's, um, I think so. I think those things are changing the way we consume as well. Like the way we think about writing or art. If, you, if you've grown up with movies, you've grown up with computer games, you've grown up with music, which has a certain beat or rhythm, then in a way without getting too technical about this, in a, in a way, writers need to play to that. You, you, if people now think in scenes and the scenes are a minute or two long, then I, as a writer, think, okay, I can write like that. I can, I can give you a scene that on a movie screen would take 20, 30, 40 seconds. And anyway, this, this, I'm getting kind of nerdy now, but I, I, that's how I think about it. Well, I'm hearing passion. And now we're talking passion about writing. I think you're, I would guess that your passion for writing is second to your passion for shepherding. I used to think I used to think that it's rivaling now. It's at least equal. Yeah, it's complicated, but I feel like my my duty to my farm and my family and this piece of land. I'm quite a long way down that road now. I'm getting to the point where we've restored a lot of the things on the farm that I wanted to. A lot of the habitats. My children are getting older, and in a sense, as I said in my first book, in, in a sense that was never about me. That's like a sort of I'm a small link in a very long chain, and I'll other people will come after me. So one of my daughters is very keen on the farm at the moment. I can see the day coming where she'll be the, she'll be the safe pair of hands to look after it. Um, and then I won't matter very much in that. And in a way, I'm, I'm starting to wonder whether the last thing I focus on in the, maybe the second half of my life is, is not giving up the farm or not ceasing to be here, but I have a lot of things I want to write. And maybe that's where a lot of my mental energy is going to go. Or that's where a lot of my effort will go, not least because I need to get out of the way and let my son or my daughters, sons or daughters, have their space to, to have their moment on the farm, to do the things that they believe in. So, yeah, I'm, I'm starting to wonder whether writing is my retirement plan. That's what, I'm gonna, that's what I'm gonna focus my days on. And it doesn't mean I don't love shepherding. No, it's not a huge mm-hmm. part of my daylight hours. It's, it's what I do all day long, every day. But yeah, I feel like I've got more on undone work as a writer than undone work as a farmer, if that makes any sense. Yes, I think so. And the first one was like a tableau. And when I say the first one, I mean uh, A Shepherd's Life. Your second one, actually, there's a picture book. I, mean, I, I keep calling it a picture book because I forget the title, but there was one in the middle that was, um, it was beautiful. And I was, I, I was trying to decide if I should like take some of the language and try to say it back to you. But I know <laughs> I'd say it all wrong. It would probably sound terrible. The middle book I did, which in America was called The Shepherd's View, was it's a quicker thing. It's a lighter thing. It's a fun thing. It has some pictures in there and it, it has some fun little pieces in there about people I knew, but in my head, isn't, isn't a proper book, if I'm really honest. <laughs> the, 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 the two memoir pieces are, are really where I put most of my, my working effort. So yeah, there was, a, there was a middle one as well that was fun. And pastoral life, 
pastoral song is, to my mind, much more intense. And it tells me of someone who went, looked into the abyss and took steps into it and then went the other way, more knowledgeable for it. And I think that the, I'm really curious about, I mean, it's what you wrote about, but I'd love to hear more about, I think that you knew, like your father was taking steps, you were taking steps to this more intensive efficiency-driven way of doing things broader. You saw what its end in Australia and America. I think you knew that you knew what was happening beforehand, but you couldn't quite put your finger on it. And then, and I think that a lot of us are doing that. And I wonder if you could share more about that experience of, of seeing where it was going, because it must have, I'm guessing that there was a gut check of well, you could go that way, maybe sell the land and walk away and be rich. I don't know. But I mean, you did an about face, not quite an about face. I mean, it's like the hero's journey. It feels like that uh, you faced some demons and emerged more for it. Yeah. So, I mean, the truth of it is, and I try to be really truthful in the books about it, is I was, I think I was smart enough to have doubts. So what, what are we really talking about? Through the 1990s, through the 2000s, when I'm a 20-year-old, 30-year-old uh, and younger, we're trying to modernize on the farm. We're getting bigger tractors. We're using pesticides. We're using all the sort of post-war armory of things. And they come to our farm quite late. So some of the things that would happen on a really intensive uh, farm in the American Midwest in maybe the 50s or 60s are only really happening in the 1990s on our farm. So there's a the sort of future happens in different places at different speeds because of the wealth of the farm or the kind of landscape they're in. And there was a deep romanticism, I think I would call it, in our family about our land and about what we did. And we told ourselves that we were just doing the same things we'd always done and that nothing ever changed. That's, that's usually part of farmers' idea of themselves. But it, it also was very clear to me that things were changing. Fields of grass are dark green. They're growing quicker. Why are they growing quicker? Because we put ammonia nitrate on. And, and my dad might be telling himself that that's what we always did. But the truth is, that's not what we always did. We didn't do that 30 years earlier, 40 years earlier. Or we're now spraying the thistles or the weeds in the field of grain or barley in a way that we didn't 20, 30 years earlier. So it's not the same. But my first response, which I think is probably most people's response when they're caught up in modernity, is to think somebody must have thought this through. We're told this is progress. This must be taking us from A to B and B must be better than A. Who am I to think this is all wrong? Like if I stand up and say this is wrong, on what basis? Like I'm, I'm 20 years old. How could I, how could I call the entire entirety of modernity wrong. So it took me a lot of years to, I got really interested in history and economic history. I got really interested in America. Still, I'm very interested in post-war America. I got really interested in economics. I was like, okay, so why are people thinking like this? And is it better? And for a few years, a few short years, I thought they must be right. I read the sort of Milton Friedman's of the world, the Friedrich Hayek's. I read The Economist, The Economist that were telling us how this all worked. And my initial reaction was, oh, these guys may not be the nicest people I've ever read. They're pretty, they're accepting of a pretty cruel world order, but it makes sense. They're telling me how the game works. And for a little while, I thought, okay, the problem with me then, the problem with our family is that we're just not getting with the program fast enough. If only we got bigger tractors quicker. If only we borrow more money, build a bigger barn. If only we keep more cattle. If only we keep more sheep. I thought it was us that was wrong. And it was only over time. And we we had old fashioned farming neighbors that did modernize. They were I mean, there's a guy called Henry in the book. He's a little bit like a sort of English equivalent of the Amish. He, he, he's suspicious of all this stuff. He doesn't want to do it. He doesn't have kids. He keeps farming like the future hasn't happened, or like the present hasn't happened. And probably the moment that sticks in my mind was my dad came back from the pub and he'd been talking to all of the farmers after Henry died. And one of my dad's friends, modern farmer, had sent a soil analyst onto Henry's farm to test the soil, assuming it would need lots of nitrogen and things to make things grow. And the uh, the soil scientist, the agronomist, came back and said it was the healthiest soil he'd ever measured. And this was ground earth shattering to my dad, that the most old-fashioned farmer in the district. So I could see this really rocked, this really rocked my dad's mind. It was like, whoa, hang on a minute. Does this mean that everything else we're being told might be wrong too? And I, I'm not going to pretend I woke up the next morning and I was suddenly a sort of farming radical and I knew exactly how to fix the world. I didn't. It took many, many years to piece that together. But when I look back, Henry was quite a big thing in, in our lives, that maybe the past was better than the present or the future that we were going into. So after Henry, we, that's when I started to read more about this stuff. I deliberately hunt out books that were critical of farming or explaining why it might be problematic. 
and yeah, I read people like Rachel Carson and yeah, but I mean, I just remember the slow realization that maybe we're all a bit like being on a train, traveling at high speed, and then beginning to wonder if the driver knows where they're going, whether this train's safe. And the truth is, I wasn't a particularly well-educated kid. I wasn't a hugely intellectually confident kid. So it took me quite a lot of years to just get braver and braver year on year to go, hang on a minute, this is there's something nuts about this. What's going on? And yeah, so a very sort of completion of that journey really was in the last six years where we've opted out of all our stuff on our farm. Uh, we don't use any artificial fertilizers. We don't use barely any pesticides. We occasionally use and didn't uh, disprove, uh, uh, disapprove. Trying to put things back together and we're trying to live by some different values and just that there's a great many other farmers now feel the same way and there's a growing body of really powerful science that that tells us that my dad and my grandfather's suspicions about all this stuff and my as a young man are now actually proven. This, this thing's going in the wrong direction. It's dangerous. It's badly thought through. And we need to think about ec- economics and particularly farming economics and food economics differently or, or we're in deep shit. You know, the, it's funny. I, of all of what I read of yours, I took out one paragraph and I'm going to read it if it's okay with you, and I'll probably mess up your voice because it's, it's yes. going to be, but it's just what you're saying. So reading now from your book, for weeks afterward, as we passed Henry's farm, dad would tell me that we were bloody fools. This news confirmed something dad had always felt in his gut. Deep down, he had never really believed in many of the changes. And with every passing year, he was becoming more skeptical. We were doing these new things because we had to, getting more cattle and sheep, acquiring bigger machines, making these changes, and meanwhile, losing good people. And yet, where was it all heading? If modern farming made the soil worse and reduced it to a junkie requiring more and more hits of, of shop-bought chemicals, then how sustainable was it? Dad couldn't step out of it entirely, but he saw right through it. Rather than admire our friends and relatives who are creating huge new farming businesses with enormous buildings and loads of machinery and staff, he worried for them. He thought their world was ugly, built on debt, and increasingly risky and volatile. It would come crashing down around them someday. And when it began to, and some of the biggest farms went bankrupt. He defended them and said we had all been fools once. There was no pleasure in seeing fam- farmers losing their farms. My father knew the truth lay in Henry's soil. And some of the stuff, I presume others get choked up just reading it, not even, I'm not a shepherd. I haven't been there, but I, I can see it happening. So I would imagine most people get choked up at, at this part and other parts as well. Yeah, I, I, I'm very lucky. I get a lot of letters from people that read my books and um yeah, there's a lot of people talking about crying, so I hope I don't make everybody cry too much. But when when you read that passage back there, I was it was funny because it, I listened to it properly because you read it actually instead of me reading it, and it brought back that feeling that I had in my teens and my twenties, even my thirties, of just my dad of a sort of frustration and a, maybe a fear on my behalf that my dad, who I wanted to be all seeing, all knowing, all wise, for a lot of that period, didn't seem to really know what the hell was happening to us. And didn't seem to have the tools. And, and I sometimes judged him harshly for that when I was young. And now that I'm the same age as he was then, I, I now look back and think, how, how would he know? How, like, how would you understand all this stuff? If like, My dad didn't have a lot of education. He wasn't a man that read a lot of books. He wouldn't go to like public lectures. There's no internet at the time. How would my dad know what the hell this thing was? I think he just carried it on his own shoulders. I think he thought he, he was a failure as a farmer because we were struggling. And... Yeah, and I, and I wanted to rehabilitate him and farmers like him, and say, "Hang on, hang on a minute, people. Uh, you know that you're not failures. You, you're part of a big sweeping change that's happening in the modern world through that period, and it's pretty damn cruel. And and you could argue, okay, there's always losers to all changes, and maybe that's okay, which is what I would have said in my twenties. But now I look at it and think, no, actually, this this was making the world worse in lots of ways, and we were losing good people not for good reasons, for pretty crummy reasons. Now, I want to jump ahead a bit too, because there's, you did reverse course and there were a few things I'm really curious to hear more details about. And one of them is your experience of Rachel Carson. I think, did you mention Jane Jacobs? Yeah. I live in Greenwich Village, so she's a huge hero for me. Yeah. Uh, And then also at the end result was, I'm really curious to hear more about seeing that owl, seeing, getting reports about counting the, the diversity of plants on your land. Yeah. Let's do that in reverse order. Um, so 
No, let's actually let's not. Let's do Jane Jacobs first. So Jane Jacobs is a huge hero of mine, and 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 Rachel Carson. And I think, although we've all heard of them, I still don't think they're given the proper credit that they deserve. What they are to me is some of the the most articulate, thoughtful critics of unthinking modernism, basically. So Rachel Carson's the critic of unthinking modernism in agriculture, and Jane Jacobs is the, the arch critic of unthinking modernism in our built environments, and. It's not a coincidence that they're American. America, coming out of the Second World War, is the is the sort of heartbeat all around the world of these ideas, of this thinking, because you're wealthier coming out of the Second World War and you, on, on one level, have a very successful economic system. So everybody else is copying you, really. Um, we're copying you on our farm decades after maybe a farmer in Indiana would have done those things. And But I think they're bigger. I think they're bigger than a few protests in downtown New York or bigger than DDT in the case of Rachel Carson. To me, to me, they're actually raising profound, fundamental questions about the whole modernity project, really. They're saying, hang on a minute, we're not thinking things through properly. Hang on a minute, we're, our optimism is not very well grounded in, in wisdom, really, and sense, and our place in the world. And, and the things that we're creating, the places we're creating, whether they're rural or urban, might actually be worse in all sorts of really, really devastating ways. And the truth is probably also not a coincidence that they're women. So, so what, do men, what do men do? Men shout them down, treat them like they're crazy, like they're cranky, communist, which, which is hysterical. All the, all the words that men have used in the past, I hope no longer used to describe women that cause trouble. And yeah, I, I think they're really calling out modernity. They're saying, whoa, hang on a minute here. Just, let's just think really carefully about this power that we have. And and the most amazing lines in Silent Spring are and nothing to do with DDT. She writes, I mean, there's a quote I requote in my book, which is, she says something like, and I'll mangle this, only in the present generation have, has humanity learned how to profoundly change our world beyond all recognition, something like that. And that's, if there's nothing else in that book, that's the great insight that's that our power is profoundly altered. Not, not that we're changing the world for the first time. We've always done that. But it was the level of change that were profoundly erasing and eradicating whole landscapes of something else to make something that we naively believe is better and we haven't thought it through. And yeah, and and then turning to the second part of your question, the thing that we've well, actually, let me take a step back. Probably the greatest learning experience of my whole life was not even on the farm and it wasn't in a book. When I came back from university in my 20s, my wife and I were broke. We didn't have much money. Uh, we went to live in the local city, 30 miles down the road. It's the only place we could afford to buy a house. And we did a house up. And if I'm really honest, I went there with all sorts of prejudices against sort of urban life, urban people. I thought like a country kid, I was slumming it or whatever. And what I actually learned in the the weeks, months, and few years that we were there is a lot of profound things that I needed to learn that I was never going to learn on the farm. And some of that was about how brilliant a lot of those urban working class people were and I loved their values. I loved how they lived. I loved how they looked after each other in that community. Really important things for me to learn and see. And then I also, and this, this was the bit that blew my mind, there was more wildlife on the edge of an old industrial city than there was on our farm. And I'd been brought up and did believe until that time that our farm was full of wildlife and we were good land managers. And suddenly I'm on an old industrial estate on the edge of a northern English city, and there's barn owls, there's otters, there's all sorts of stuff on a day-by-day basis I'm seeing that I'm not seeing on my farm at home. And I remember coming back and telling one of my farm friends in the pub, I was like, I saw an otter today. And it was so disbelievable to him, unbelievable to him. He, he laughed as if I told him a joke that there could be an otter in the middle of this industrial, post-industrial city. And I didn't argue with him, but I thought, oh my God, that's me. That's been me for most of my life. I thought we were better land managers than we really are. And so what, when I came back to the farm in the years after that and took it, ultimately took it on and managed the land, uh, I wanted to see how much nature we could get back on it. And long story short, every time we give nature a chance, maybe we, we have a river corridor and we let more wilderness happen, or maybe we plant trees or small areas of woodland. Within hours, days, weeks, nearly, nearly usually within hours, I'm seeing new things, new pieces of nature, new species of flora and fauna arriving on our farm. And the one that really blew my mind was barn owls. So I had a very fond memory of my grandfather showing me barn owls on this farm when I was maybe 10 years old. 
and they had vanished 15 years ago. And within three months of us fencing off some areas and managing them for nature on the farm, the barn owls came back. And my family aren't, despite me talking a lot now, my family aren't particularly uh, great talkers to each other. But we just stood one night and we watched the barn owls in one of our fields. And there was just a sense in the air, like, hang on a minute, this is the right thing to do. This is, this is the kind of stuff we're meant to be doing. And and we can make it better. Okay, we've made we've damaged things, we've made a mess, we've degraded things. Let's let's make it better. And and I think that was the moment we flipped. And ever since then we're becoming more and more radical year on year. We just want to okay, we just have a small farm here in a, an old valley in the hills in the Lake District in the north of England. But we want to do everything we can. And we've now got this amazing network of friends and other farmers around us who want to do the same thing. They've had the same journey. And it's pretty amazing when you get to the point where you can change a whole valley. And you have maybe 70% of the farmers doing the same stuff. And we're seeing species of birds and all sorts of things happening. Dragonflies, there were loads of dragonflies here this summer, way more than there used to be. That, at that point, you're starting to fix the world. And, and our little farm and our little lives here feel like they could add up to something bigger. If you like the show, I recommend acting, as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. So much in what you said to follow up on. One thing, when you're talking about Carlson and Jacobs responding to America's, you said we had wealth in in an economic system. We also had a lot of fossil fuels. And I feel like that's a big piece of this, is that it's all driven by fossil fuels. I think if I read right, you're off the electric grid now, that you're now solar at your farm. Yeah, we're, we're, uh, we're solar. We do, I mean, f- full disclosure, we use a little bit of fossil fuels on a generator in winter to back that up. We haven't yet fully completed that system, so we don't need any. But um, yeah, and we, we were carbon audited re- recently, and um, we do a lot of what's called regenerative grazing on the farm, which is trapping carbon in the soil and, and using, uh, sort of creating healthy soil. But we're, we're carbon positive by somewhere between 50 and 200 tons a year now. So, well, you know, like, our farm is trapping carbon, not releasing it. And that, that's got to be a good thing, hasn't it? And I'm, I'm hearing in your voice, I want to call it something and tell me if I'm misreading you, but I think a lot of people expect, and you, you wrote perhaps a bit disparagingly of hippie types before, and you said, oh, maybe there was something to what they were saying, even if they weren't on, like they weren't on a farm, so they didn't know. But there was something, I mean, you talked about Lucy as someone who came out making big changes for you, but that I think that before doing it, people... And in your case, it was moving toward making the farm regenerative, but all of us face the choice of how much we want to embrace a modernity that parts of it are probably awesome. Parts of it, I think many of us know, I'm you know, shaking hands with the devil here, that it's going to decrease Earth's ability to sustain life, whether, it's, whether we're farmers or whatever we do. And it's really hard. And we think we're going to give up a lot. And we think we're going to lose what we value. And if I read right, you've had an experience that it's, you wish you had changed earlier, that what you had to gain is much more like, it's not like it's owls and it's, it's a stream that now meanders, but it's in your heart. Yeah. I mean, let, let me jump in that. Yeah, I do. I, I think we have, we literally have the world to gain, right? We're, we're, we, we know ever since we put man on the moon and we turned the camera back on earth that we live on this tiny, fragile little planet um, that has amazing amounts of diverse life on it. We're incredibly bloody lucky and we're screwing it up. And <laughs> it's literally insane. And, and you're right, we do. We're thinking about all the things we'll have to give up. We're thinking of this as negative. We're thinking of this as inflicting misery and poverty on ourselves. No, bullshit. That's the wrong way around. We've, we've let that get framed the wrong way around. What we're actually getting is, what we should actually be thinking of this as, is building communities that we really want to live in. Having food that's really good for us, that's produced in sustainable ways. Redesigning our urban and our rural landscapes and communities so that we can all take part in that. 
Like I'm a huge fan of like urban agriculture. You can do amazing things on small horticultural spaces in, in, in urban areas. These things make life better. And if you travel to the most industrialized agriculture on earth and you meet the people in those places, and I'm talking about the American Midwest, but I could be talking about Western Australia, or I could be talking about the Ukraine now or other places, you actually find places that people are fed up in. Uh, they're angry. They're politically angry. They're, they're being put out of business. They think no one cares about them. They're, they're massive drug problems and social problems. There's massive poverty pro- problems. Those are not model communities. Like There are amazing people in those communities. Many of the farmers in those communities are amazing, good people, good families. But those are not model communities that we should be championing. And in the 1940s and 50s, maybe up until the 60s, it was possible to believe that was taking you to a better future. But it, it isn't possible now. We can go and look at it. I mean, those people, are, those people feel dismissed and then they feel angry. Then they vote for dickheads like Trump and all the rest of it. We, this is just not a model for the future. And yeah, I have a lot of time for those people. I, it, it upsets me when I hear people talking about, like describing the whole middle of America as the flyover states or describing people as white trash or rednecks and things. You're like, whoa, hang on a minute. We're really going to dismiss all these people? Let's, I think we need to rein that back in, and I think we need to value those people and, and help them create better food systems, better, yeah, you know, there's so much work to be done, but this, this should be seen as a positive. I think we can make our cities, our towns, our villages, our, and our rural communities way, way healthier. It's just about changing our priorities, changing our priorities, shifting away from all this plastic crap and consumer crap that we don't really need and ch- re-channeling some of our income, a greater share of our income, let's be honest, to food and food production and realizing that that matters because the um, what the economists called externalities, all the external costs of the system that's making it cheap at the moment mean that it isn't cheap at all. And it's, and it's not sustainable anyway. There's two ways to get out of this mess. One is for us all to grow up and be progressive and help each other and work together to solve it. The other one is we, we just keep going till we're in collapse and then we have to change in really painful circumstances. So one way or another, we're changing. The books make what you just, I've heard a lot of people say similar things to what you just said, but they haven't gone through, you know, they haven't taken a farm that was going one way and completely reversed and then led, as you said, people around you to follow. And there's a maybe these words are overused, but a genuineness and authenticity in your, from your experience that you shared in these books. I think maybe what's happened there, Josh, is a while ago, I gave up on the idea that I personally, as an individual, can change the whole world. Or, or rather, I gave up on the idea that if I shout loud enough or lecture people enough, I can change the whole world. I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. Can I change the world by changing my little bit and then persuading my neighbor to change their little bit? And by the way, they, they probably don't need, need me pers- to persuade them to because they're, they're every bit as smart as I am. Can we change two farms next to each other? Yeah, absolutely, no doubt about it. Can we, can we persuade three or four out of the next five or six farmers down the valley to do that? Yeah, we already have. They're doing it with us. You get to a point after a little while where you think, hang on a minute, it only took like 10 of us to change a valley. What happens if we did the next valley? What happens, the important thing here is not me or not even the ideas in a way, it's, it's that if we believe in people and we educate people and we support people to change, they can change whole landscapes. The stuff we did since World War II isn't undoable. I can fix my fields. I can, put, I can mend the soil. On a simple local level, I think we can do great things. We can ultimately change the world, but we're going to do it one field at a time, one farm at a time, one household at a time. And I, and I find coming at it from the bottom is, is how we're going to get this fixed. Yeah, there's some big strategic stuff that I leave to the politicians and sort of global activists and stuff. Good luck to them. That's important. But I'm focused on the other end of the scale. Can I change my farm one field at a time? And then can we change this valley one, one farm at a time and, and move up? And, and I really am optimistic about that. I could, you know, it's a pity we couldn't have like 20 of the 20 farmers from this valley and the next on this phone call, because I think you'd find that 70 or 80% of them want to do it. And when I, get, when I find myself in places like Indiana, Indiana and Iowa, in front of roomfuls of farmers, which I sometimes do, um, okay, there's one or two people in the room who are a little bit raw about some of the things I've said about the system they're in. But most of those people are good too. Most of those people want to care about the land that they're in. Most of them want to have a future for their kids. And that's, I think we need to put farmers back as fixers of this rather than just problems and, 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 and give them a role, a role that we respect um, that's on behalf of the rest of us and then support them to do that. And you're sharing joy and experience and fun and freedom from 
that came from doing it that gives it a reality that if you didn't have those things, I think people would be tempted to say, yeah, but what about blah, blah, blah. But you're talking from experience. Yeah, like the maddest bit of this, Josh, our farm was losing money when we were trying to farm industrially intensively. Losing money. The input costs are killing us. In fact, they've been killing us for 20 years before that, which is why my dad was struggling. He couldn't work out how to get out of it. Since we switched onto a more regenerative farming model and we just go cold turkey on the inputs, we stop using any fossil fuel fertilizers. And then we try and figure out how to be productive using sunlight, healthy soil, uh, using photosynthesis effectively. Okay, we're not getting rich, (laughs) but we're not losing money anymore. We're actually making money. And at, at a level that would impress anybody, probably not. It's a small farm. It makes a small profit these days. But that's powerful. That means that when I talk to my kids about the future, they know we've tried both ways and this way works better. So it's not just better for the birds and things. It's going to enable us to hold on to our land and have a future. And the other system, the system that's dominated by giant corporations, where you buy everything off them and you sell everything to them with very little margin, that, that system doesn't care about people like me and my family. That doesn't keep us on the land. And by the way, the smartest farmers in the world for knowing this, they're in the American Midwest. They know exactly how this works. I've met hundreds of those people. They know that they're screwed unless they get out of it. The hard bit for them is that the, a lot of the local food infrastructure has disappeared. The alternatives have disappeared. And that's, that's a pretty horrible trap to put people in. Did you learn much about Norman Borlaug and the Green Revolution? Yeah, I wouldn't pretend I'm an expert on Norman Borlaug, but um, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> and I, without being a scientific expert on that, I think there's a whole interesting debate at the moment, isn't there, about whether the Green Revolution was everything we were told it was, or whether we've just persuaded a lot of people for short-term benefit in the third world to to use the methods that that we should have had more sense than to use. But we're into complex territory there, and I'm very aware that there is a lively debate about whether that saves or doesn't save hundreds of millions of people's lives, particularly the poorest people in Africa and India. So yeah, I'm not being glib about that. Those are, that's a subject that deserves uh, proper scientific study. I mean, I certainly grew up only knowing one side of that debate. Just, well, we saved billions of lives. Yeah, me too, me too. Open a shut. <laughs> yeah. But then to look at, as I understand, like the second half of his career, he was constantly talking about how, well, it's, it's impossible not to empathize with, there are people dying in the streets. There's something we can do to save their lives. How can we not do it? And then the difference between helping someone here and there and, or even a lot of people, but the systemic effects writ large. And there are a lot of very interesting writers on that, not least Vandana Shiva, who's um, a fantastic sort of activist, re-examining and re-talking with others, that whole, whole green revolution legacy. It's, yeah, it's a complicated subject and one that we shouldn't be glib about because a lot of people's lives are on the stake in it. But um I think the thing to remember is that something like 85% of the people on earth right now are fed by small farmers, uh, not by industrial agriculture. Um, like the people feeding the world are overwhelmingly small farmers. And uh, yes, I'm sure we need some very efficient, very intensive agriculture in, in some places to make sure that we produce the staples that we need. But I think we need to be careful with that because uh, some of these phrases like family farm or feeding the world, they've morphed into propaganda since the 1970s for basically for subsidizing broken agricultural industrial systems and then flooding these surplus things we produce onto the global markets, onto other people. There's a kind of propaganda at work there. So yeah, big complicated subjects. And um, yeah, I would would urge people to read fully about that and think about those issues fully rather than make throwaway comments on them. Now your knowledge of of regeneration and I want to highlight something and tell me if I misread you that once you have this rewarding experience of starting the switch, then all the stuff that you've heard about suddenly becomes, oh, I really actually want to know about that. Yeah. To me, the, the analogy, I'm not a father, but I think, I think you can read a lot about raising a child. And in the first 10 seconds of the child's actual birth, all of that is like less than what you learn in those 10 seconds of, of <laughs> holding the child. But suddenly now all going back, now you want to reread everything because oh, now there's meaning to it. And I, like, I actually do want to raise my child as, as well as I possibly can. And I think that happens. A lot of people think, well, I just need to learn a bit more and then I can act. And I think it goes the other way. I mean, you have to, have to learn enough to do something, but then once you act, that activates it. And it's, and it's, it's exciting. Like I have, a lo- I have a lot of friends now all around the UK, America, Sweden, all sorts of places who are on this journey now, trying to mend it, trying to put it back together. And do you know what? 
I know a lot of farmers. I know a lot of conventional farmers. And the, the people that are doing the regenerative stuff are absolutely buzzing. They're loving life because they're not the bad guys anymore. And farmers wear that quite heavily on their shoulders. They, they feel quite beaten up by society. So you're not the bad guy anymore. That's a, that's a blessed relief. They're on a journey of learning. Like arguably you can never know enough about ecology or soil or things to do, to do it all perfectly. But once you're on a journey of learning how you can do these things, I get up every day excited. I like, I'm watching YouTube films of Greg Judy in Missouri and Richard Perkins in Sweden or, um, or Christine Jones talking about soil. I'm excited every day to learn new stuff. And the really grubby struggle that is industrial agriculture isn't like that. I know a lot of my school friends are locked in that and they're, they're doing their best. They're, they're good people. They're working hard, but they're broken by it. I mean, they're almost broken. They're, they're working insane hours. They're earning no money. They feel vulnerable and stressed. They feel like everybody else is against them and criticizing what they do. And that not valued for producing the food they produce. Like one of my one of my dairy farming friends that, that lives a life like that said to me recently, "It's it's no fun. It's no fun. It, it used to feel like it was fun. Like, a, and I think what he's saying is, I used to feel like I was in a community. I used to, used to feel like there was love and craft in this. I used to see everybody because there was a community of us doing it. And now I'm just, you know, we're reducing farming to to sort of factory factory principles, and it doesn't reduce to factory principles well for people or the land." or animals. It gets pretty ugly and sad. You talked about seeing this reverse return to values in farming. Do you also see it in other areas as well? Yeah, I think it's, I genuinely think this is about hope. This is about whatever your world is, wherever you are, whoever you are. It's about thinking through what kind of life do we want? What, what is meaningful work? What does a good life look like? What a good community look like? How do we relate to our neighbors? in meaningful, good ways and look after them too. It's, there's nothing inherently wrong with the words profit, efficiency, productivity. We just got, the, we got them way out of kilter. We here, Certainly here from the 1980s through to maybe 10 years ago, we elevated those words out of all proportion to their real importance. Yes, they're part of everybody's thinking. Everyone has to pay their bills, et cetera. But they're not, they're not words that should be elevated to the status of gods. There are other important words, like things being sustainable, things being good, things being, things being ethical and decent and fair. And I think when we, when we change our thinking and we change our practices, life is better. Like the community where I live has never been so, well, for want of a better word, never been so collective and communal. We do loads of stuff together. We plant trees together. We, uh, we eat great food together. We listen to soil scientists together. We found a whole bunch of ways to not just mend the valley, but to try and begin to mend the community. And all right, we're a little farming valley in the north of England, but I think there's, I think this has wider application. I really do. And I think I'd feel the same thing if I lived in a sort of highly urban space with a very different life. There's you know, obviously a great many people that aren't lucky enough to live on a hillside, green hillside like me, but. I think, I think all of us are after the same things, right? We want a, a meaningful life, meaningful work and, and good communities. And those things don't show on the, bot, on the sort of profit loss accounts of large corporations, but I don't care anymore. I really don't care. There's other things that matter. I'm going I'm to have to share what you just said with a bunch of people in my life who, you know, they hear about me not flying and I haven't turned on my air conditioner for a couple of years and, and avoid packaged food. So I almost never eat out. And when I tell them, I like this more and like the food tastes better. I have more time. I, and the time that I don't have is because I'm spending time with people that I want to spend time with. And a lot of people say, yeah, really it sucks, but we recognize how much you care about the environment, which is like a misstatement of, of what this is about. Yeah. It's like a small fraction of it. And they're like, but you're just saying that so that people will follow you, but you don't really, it's really worse. And it's not. Can I say something else, Josh? There's- yeah. I think in Britain, we often think we have a sort of identical culture, the same culture as the United States about these things. I actually think we, d- we don't. My current experience of being interviewed about this book is, is profoundly different on, on, on this side of the Atlantic to your side. It feels like this conversation is at a different place. It may be one of the ways in which Britain is more European, I guess, that the thinking about slow food, the thinking about the environment seems to be, and I, I'm not being rude about lots of progressive Americans, it seems to be more prominent in Europe and more easily understood. When I'm being interviewed by American journalists, I'm having to go right back to basics. They're like, they're, they're asking me questions like, why should we care? Like, <laughs> what's this got to do with us? And you think, wow, really? We have to go right back to that? Um, 
And that's not me being rude about America. I hugely admire many, many things about America. It's full of amazing people. But it feels to me like there's a difference there. And yeah, and and you and me and a whole host of other people are going to have to be very, very good at telling stories and talking to the people around us and, and changing the culture, I think. Oh, yeah. Quite a lot here and a lot in America, I guess. Yeah, here, if I say that I shop at a farmer's market, I have to preface it with, I've learned how to shop in season so that it's cheaper and I, my goal is to make it accessible into food deserts because if I don't preface it with things like that, then people will immediately say, oh, well, you can do that. But what about the single mom in a food desert? She can't do that. And how do we help her? And the way to help her is, is through more Walmarts in their mind because they see the cheap prices, but not that Walmart impoverishes and creates the food deserts. 100%. And if you look at how you really help single, single moms uh, or you help people in poverty, it's never been cheapening food. I mean, that's literally a piece of propaganda. If you look at how you really do that in places like Norway, Sweden, and other places, you do that through proper welfare and through redistribution of wealth. Some of the countries with some of the most equal, most healthy, most happy countries, they do it through the redistribution of wealth. And food is quite relatively expensive in those countries. They accept that that's unwise to further cheapen food and is a lousy way to deliver social objectives. And I think to an amazing extent, I mean, I did, I did a master's in, a modern, in modern American history at university. I, I fascinated by loads of good things in America. But I think, I think the, the degree to which the average American believes in some of those 1980s ideas is quite amazing how widely spread they are, um, particularly when you realize that America, only a few decades before that, was effectively an agrarian nation with a different set of values in which sort of charity, common decency, looking after people were much stronger. It's yeah, uh, it's it's amazing, isn't it? The, the cultures we live in and what they do to us. Oh, yeah. And here, not only is it widespread, it's in really deep in Silicon Valley in Washington, D.C. And their answer to your problems when you were struggling and seeing the loss of community, their answer would be put a nuclear reactor right around the corner and then you have more power and that's going to solve all your problems. We have one. We actually have one 30 miles away. <laughs> Um, but but no, but no, you're right. There are, I mean, it's sort of techno optimism, right? Because uh, yeah. the classic example of that is Bill Gates at the moment. Like Bill Gates appears to be going around the world believing that he, he's rich enough and wise enough and his minions are wise enough that they can fix all agriculture's, sort of all of our food problems in a factory somewhere of their own. That, that doesn't fix our issues. What, we actually don't need that. We don't need that guy to fix all the problems. We need communities to learn how to live in the places where they live sustainably. And we need, need to learn how to use and live in nature, not escape from it more. And sadly, a lot of very bad ideas at the moment are being wrapped up in sort of greenwash. And, and if you look at who's going to benefit from a lot of those ideas, it, it's big corporations. It isn't poor people. It isn't single mums rushing through Walmart. It isn't you or me. It's, it's people like Bill Gates that ultimately will, will have more power, more wealth. I, I, I'm deeply distrustful of a lot of those dialogues. Yeah. He's, I mean, I think you're being generous when you're saying we don't need him. It's in my book, Stepping on the Gas, Thinking It's the Break and yeah. Wanting Congratulations for It. Yeah. It's accelerating the values that drew. I mean, to me, it comes back to the values that we live by. And if we simply accept what the market pushes on us, then the values that we live by are going to be efficiency and productivity and intensity, which as you say, there's, these aren't in, inherently bad things. But if we want community and freedom, freedom and fun and family, then we have to choose to live by those values. And that's not what Silicon Valley is bringing to us, or Milton Friedman. Yeah. And, the, and those economic ideas, they have to be contextualized. Like if you look at um, a lot of the 19, right from the 1930s through to the, maybe the 1980s, uh, those economics textbooks tell you that the decline of small farms is effectively a good thing. Uh, Thorsten Biebler and all sorts of economists like that, they tell you it's a good thing. And the, um, Joseph Schumpeter calls it creative destruction. The, the new big farm destroys the little old farms. It's all good. What you don't get in any of those books, and I've, I've read nearly all of them, you don't get any kind of ecological context. The, the whole world is reduced to supply and demand. I mean, they, they don't actually ask what happens to the nature in the field, what happens to the farmland birds, what happens to the insects. It's just not anywhere to be seen in those models. And yeah, and I, I'm obviously quite a high profile farmer now in, in these debates and I try to avoid that as much as possible. But when I talk to politicians who are arguing for more free trade, more 
sort of industrialization of agriculture, more efficiency. They run out of dialogue with me in about two sentences. They haven't thought about any of this stuff. All they've got is platitudes. All they've got is these giant sweeping laws that don't really work. They they literally haven't progressed beyond the thinking of the 1980s. It's 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 terrifying and sad. Yeah, I was just talking to an economist the other day, and you know, he was saying we could overshoot and have collapse. We could oscillate. We could level off. And he says, well, luckily it looks like we're leveling off. And I said to him, how can you tell the difference between leveling off and like about to collapse? And he goes, oh, that's a good question. I go, yeah, it seems like a pretty important one. And I said, if we're, if we're leveling off, but it's above what the earth can sustain, which we can do temporarily with fossil fuels, for example, you know, what do you think the population that the earth can sustain is? And he goes, that's a good question. And he says, you know, one, there's one little hole in, that I'm not really sure about. And he goes, that's agriculture. I'm like, well, that's a pretty big thing. <laughs> I would manage the entirety of the world service. Yeah. It's, I mean, there's, there is another thing. I mean, one of the, some of the best thinking on this, frankly, was done by my friend Wendell Berry in Kentucky, and it was done decades ago. So, so some of what I'm saying owes a debt to, to Wendell, but he wrote a book called The Unsettling of America, which, you know, a little, little dated in its specifics now, but it's a really, really important book thinking this sort of stuff through. And he points out, Wendell's pointed out many, many times that we actually need a more negotiated relationship with technology. What do I mean by that? He uses the example of the Amish. So I'm, I'm not telling you everything's perfect about Amish society, but as I understand it, and as he explains it, when a new technology comes into an Amish community, there's something of a debate in the community about, will we adopt it or will we turn our backs on it? If we do adopt it, at what scale would we accept it? What would be the implications? And if it means that our neighbor might be put out of work, how would we how would you re- reconcile these complicated things? And because we live in a sort of very techno-optimistic society, that sounds mad to, to many of us. We think Silicon Valley will come up with a techno solution to everything. But actually, I, I suspect, as Wendell has pointed out, that the Amish are right. We need to start talking about new technologies when they come, thinking about them carefully, saying, what will this, what will this really do? How will this play out in fields and, and, and ecosystems? And we have no real precedent for that. I mean, since the Industrial Revolution uh, we've worshipped disruption. We've wor- we've worshipped creative destruction, and I think probably we need to do what the what the army should do, which is to just to have a way more public debate about these things and think them through. And had we done that properly in the 1960s about things like pesticides, when Rachel Carson asked us to have that, that dialogue, I think we'd be in a different place now. I don't know exactly how that would work, but I, I think the principle is a good one. Yeah, and if someone hears Amish and thinks, "Oh, I don't want to ride around in a carriage," I think. To clarify, you're saying it's the process, it's the self-examination and the community discussion. And what I would say is all communities are different. Most of us would think that a degree of personal freedom is important to this as well. So I'm, I'm not telling everybody they have to live like the Amish. What I'm saying is wherever your community is, and it might be a, a geographic community or it might be a community of craft or work like farmers, that, that you might want to have an informed debate about new technologies coming in before you unleash them. And at the moment, we do the opposite, which is wildly irresponsible of saying, it's new, it does a tiny part of this picture better, crack on. Like, literally, do it everywhere. And we now know that doesn't actually work. I mean, there's things fall off the table. There's species of birds, flowers, all the rest of it. There's something like 60% less farmland birds in the UK, and I think I'm right in saying in America too, than there was 30 or 40 years ago. It's because the guy designing the more efficient combine harvester or the whatever other agricultural technology it was that we used didn't think it was their job. The sales, co- the, the engineering company that made those things, John Deere, Massey Ferguson, they don't think it's their job to worry about the birds. The salesman in the local town, he doesn't think it's his job. The, the woman in the bank who lends the money to the farmer, she doesn't think it's her job. The farmer thinks his job is to produce X amount of soy for Y price. He doesn't think it's his job. It isn't anybody's job. Like that's because there's this whole thing's not being discussed, not being thought about. It isn't. It isn't anywhere near holistic enough. And yeah, I, I don't want to sound like I'm preaching people, but it seems really obvious to me that that it has to be somebody's job to care about the birds. And maybe it's a little bit of all of those people's jobs. Yeah, it's. You don't sound like you're preaching because you've lived it and you're speaking from experience. There are so many things. Will you? Please, I, I know that right now your book is is going like is selling like crazy, and you're doing. You must be talking multiple times per day. I hope that when things settle down, you'll come back for a second episode because I feel like 
the more you say, the more open thing, the more open threads I want to pursue. Well, I'm. Uh, well, I've, I've got two good, two bits of good news for you. Um, <laughs> my wife is a writer, so maybe in the future she'll um, she'll fill in the the blank that you spoke about at the start of this podcast mm-hmm. about uh, her perspective on all of this. I, I hope at some point she can share that with people. No one would be more proud than me if that happens. And the other thing is I, I'm working on another book, which is a little bit different, but which is about some of the same themes in a different setting, a different landscape setting. So maybe when I've, I've written that next book and it comes out in the States, we could, we could pick some of these threads up and talk them through. That'd be great. Yeah, I would love to. And I give you an open invitation to contact me anytime you want to share more. Thank you. And uh, yeah, I just say thank you to everybody's time that's, that's taken the time to listen to this. I, I, I very much appreciate people um, giving me their ears. It's, it's not something I take for granted. Okay, uh, we should mention, I'll, I'll put a link to it, but your Twitter feed, and I don't do Instagram and things. Do you also do lots of other things? Uh, Are there other places for people to find you? Uh, just Instagram or Twitter. Uh, my handle is at HurdyShepherd1. Uh, I'm kind of off there at the moment, but my wife's putting a lot of stuff on there about what we're doing on the farm and some of the projects we're involved with. And yeah, that, you know, if you want to ask us questions and things, um, I'm sure somebody at our end will try and answer them on there. Yeah. And I'm going to recommend the books. You could... You listener could start with uh, Pastoral Song. I would start with the first one though and uh, get the full picture. You won't regret it. And just lovely, wonderful, life-changing books. James Rebanks, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, There's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.